Welcome to the Unconventional Path, Entrepreneurship and Innovation Stories and Ideas. Hello, I'm Bela Musitz, coming to you from the capital region of upstate New York. I'm a former three-time entrepreneur, venture capitalist, and now the retired David D. Ray Professor of Innovation and Entrepreneurship at Clarkson University. And coming to you from the other side of the Atlantic Ocean, in Münster, Germany, I'm Mike Wasserman, Professor of International Management at the Münster University of Applied Sciences. Thanks for joining us. Uh, we hope you enjoy listening to this as much as we enjoy creating it. A lot of people ask why we do this, and I'll tell you it's not to make money. Uh, the reason we do this is that both of us love to learn from smart and interesting people about how the world is changing, and specifically about how innovation and entrepreneurship are changing. We overlay our observations and compare them with the lessons that we've both learned over three-plus decades as entrepreneurs, investors, managers, and professors. To do this, we've put together our network of interesting friends and former students and business partners, along with other people we've met more recently, to bring you interesting stories, ideas, and insights into innovation, entrepreneurship, and the people that take unconventional paths to find happiness at work and in life. So today's guest is Mike Wachholder. So this is actually part two of a two-part interview or conversation uh, that I had with Mike Wachholder. So we really suggest you go back and listen to part one, which we released last week. Uh, this week, Mike and I, uh, in part two, talk about uh, lifelong learner or being a lifelong learner, how to be a good boss, uh, the role of mentors, uh, both as a mentor and a mentee, and how all of a sudden uh, something in life uh, can change your outlook and uh, your ability to do things. So it was really a good conversation I had with Mike. And uh, as you will learn uh, from part one, and it'll come out in this episode as well, part two, uh, Mike and I used to work together. Uh, he was my boss and hired me at Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute to run their business incubator there. So it was a fabulous conversation. And uh, I hope you enjoy the part two of this episode with Mike Wachholder. This podcast is brought to you in part by the law firm of Phillips Lytle, LLP. We are proud to partner with Phillips Lytle because of the entrepreneurial approach they take to legal matters and their long history of success with startup businesses. Their nationally recognized attorneys think like entrepreneurs, taking a pragmatic approach to getting things done and spotting issues before they become problems. Whether you need help starting, funding, or selling a business, from single-person startups to nine-figure exits. The attorneys at Phillips Lytle can help. I have worked with Phillips Lytle for years, and they are recognized as the go-to team for guiding startup businesses down the path to success. For more information, contact Phillips Lytle partner Rich Honan at 518-618-1225 or visit phillipslytle.com. So one of the other things that I've heard, as I've listened to you talk about, you know, all the way from from Berkeley to to Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute, you've been fortunate enough to to work for some people that sounds like have been really good mentors to you. That it, it was sort of a special relationship, and um, not only did that happen, but you also recognized it. That it was a special relationship, and you you use that uh, in, in a good way. I'm not trying to say you used it in a bad way, but you used it in a good way 
to to learn and 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 to become smarter and and to to motivate yourself. So how do you think about mentors? I mean, you were a mentor to me. I know you've been a mentor to a lot of people. Um, but talk about that a little bit. I'm sure you have great thoughts and ideas about that. I, I was I was very fortunate to have a whole string of mentors as my, my career evolved. And some of them I was drawn to. You just, you're drawn to those two guys at the firm that went to A&M. They just were exceptional. I was drawn to them. I wanted to be around them. My theory was something had to rub off if I was around them. Um, and as I evolved over to Texas A&M, uh, I was still with them. And the dean of architecture became a great friend, a wonderful mentor, as did the provost. And I now, I, I'm a huge believer. And I tell young kids going to college and young people going on their careers to don't be afraid to seek out mentors because they'll change your life. You know, the um, if you think when you went to college, and I was naive still, even after graduate school, thinking I could handle any job in planning because I was well-educated. Well, over the years I learned that two things. One, you're never fully educated to have all the answers. And two, the real essence of college to me is only one thing, to learn how to learn for the rest of your life. And I've preached that to a lot of people, to learn how to learn for the rest of your life. You have to really, you know, be challenged by that. And uh, mentors teach. And now, you know, as I got older and established in my career, I've enjoyed mentoring people and helping them with their careers. But at the same time, um, I never for a minute lost sight of my mentors. And we, I mentioned I have Carrie and Lally, two guys on the RPI board, and two guys that oversaw the incubator and the park. Remarkable mentors. And George Lowe, um, and several people at RPI, including the Dean of Architecture, Patrick Quinn, who incidentally, Patrick Quinn, used to, was my professor at Berkeley years and years before that. Um, and Paul Zuber, I mentioned, the head of urban and regional planning um, at RPI. He was a mentor like a father to me. And so as my career went on and on, that's, that's what happened. And then the ultimate mentor in tech parks was a guy named Sam Hefner, who was on the board at RPI, who became the chair of the oversight committee for the park, who then became chairman of the RPI board trustees. And Sam and I became very good friends, and he was the owner and developer of a huge real estate, commercial real estate enterprise in Baltimore. And um, he taught me, he taught me so much, I, I would take several volumes to write about it. And so he was a great mentor. And the trouble is now, as I look back, then I was pretty young and learning, you know, continuing to learn for the rest of my life. But all those people I've mentioned, most all, not all, have passed on. And now I'm one of the old guys looking down and talking, to, you know, looking for mentors and volunteering my time as much as I can. And I wrote a book recently called Thoughts Along the Way. And it's really thoughts I've developed along the way of my career. And there's a chapter, it's a real short book with 
two or three page pieces in it and one piece is about mentoring how it's so essential seek mentors and I, I mentioned and I mentioned to kids when I talked to them if you know you don't have to go up and say will you be my mentor but if you show an interest in that person that person will show an interest in you don't be afraid to approach people and uh, so that's a chapter and there's another chapter about learning to learn for the rest of your life um, all these things I've learned along the way I try to remember and record and so it's a little bit little tiny book and did I ever give you a copy of it I think no, I, I did I don't, I don't think you did but I, I feel that I might be getting one right now yep not this one but one and you know there's um, it's just I don't want to brag about it because some people may laugh at it but you know the there's a, cha- a piece you know short pieces on intelligence and wisdom and I make the point that intelligence is something you weren't you uh, I'm sorry intelligence is something that uh, you're born with and the best you can do is cultivate it and wisdom is something you acquire over time you become wise and I, and I wrote about that and then the power of the brain I wrote about and how we just underestimate the extraordinary power of our brain and I cite some examples which I won't do now and another chapter or piece of it is celebrating uncertainty and I reflect on those times when we went through life-altering experiences that scared us to death like going to kindergarten like getting on the school bus like going from um, elementary school to middle school and having to adjust to a new school a new bus full of kids lock excuse me lockers and all that and you know you're really uptight about it and then getting your first going to college having no idea what it's like and you're so uncertain and you learn over time that all those uncertainties became just old habits and you adjusted very well and so then as you got a job and in your job you're you're thrust into new kinds of things you got to learn over time to celebrate uncertainty instead of being so fearful of it so i could go on and on you know reflecting on my childhood as a cub scout and the motto is be prepared and throughout my career people have called me a workaholic and I've always been insulted by that sort of flattered that people know I work hard but insulted by being a workaholic because that presumes you work for the sake of work and I learned that to be successful and do well you have to be prepared and my times of working hard and overtime were preparing for the next day or the next meeting so on and on and on. So Thoughts Along the Way is the name yep. of the book by Michael yeah. Wachholder. And where, yeah. can, where can people get it? You can get, you can get it on, um, on um, Amazon. Amazon yeah. All right. I wrote another book, too, which we won't get into, but it's called Where's There. Um, another one, i got to just share a couple more. The Ultimate Performance Metric, um, which I'm going to make you read the book to find out what it is. <laughs> and Listen to Yourself and common sense at one time I wanted and I approached Paul Zuber about it I wanted to get my PhD and write a dissertation on how you can teach and learn to have common sense because so many people don't have it and then the last chapter is life is about learning anyway another chapter about dream big dreams and here's a couple of good ones (laughs) the more you admit that you don't know 
the more others think that you do know. And that, I would tell you the story because it's delightful, but I can't now. Um, it'll take too much of your time. And one of the ones, no matter how smart you are, there's always room for stupid. And I learned that um, at a luncheon with our most successful incubator company president, CEO, that I ever worked with, who's a multi-multi-millionaire in this community. Um, and he, through something he did, taught me, taught me that concept about no matter how smart you think you are, and he's about the smartest guy I've ever known, there's always room to be stupid. And I've lived up to that many times myself. So you got to read the book. <laughs> so it sounds like, uh, you know, we were talking about intelligence before and wisdom and how you've distilled uh, a significant amount of your wisdom into that book. Mm -hmm. So it sounds like a wonderful, wonderful uh, thing to read. If you want to give me credit after you read it that I'm wise. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm going to switch gears a little bit, Mike. Uh, a number of years ago, you sort of had a significant health challenge that cropped up in your life. Uh, Life-altering uh, thing. A life-altering event. Yeah. I'd love to get your thoughts on that if you're willing and, and chat about it a little bit. Well, that life-altering event occurred while I was still working at RPI, but I was well past 65, but I loved what I was doing in the tech park so much that I just didn't want to give it up. I used to get up every morning, couldn't wait to get to work. Um, and so when I was about just 69, and actually almost 70, I came to work one day and I, was, I walked up the front walk to my office and I was wobbling, kind of leaning left. I again, I'm back to my knee, my being so naive in certain things always. And I didn't think much of it when I got in the office. I was wobbling, and just coincidentally that day, I was scheduled to have my um, annual physical. And so, early afternoon, I drove down to the doctor, and while there, I said, "Doc, I'm kind of weird, you know, leaning to the left. Check me out." make sure I'm not having a stroke. So the guy get the usual, point this, do that, stick out your tongue, da 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 And uh, he said, you're okay, go back to work. And I was having a stroke. And I went back to work, and I didn't feel I got worse and worse. So, un foolishly, but who knew, I drove home, told my wife I wasn't feeling well, I left work early, and went to bed. And I got up later, and I got out of bed and I fell down. And then I knew something was wrong with me. And so um, those symptoms kept happening. And I'm telling you this story because the motto of the story is, I waited, the doctor missed the call, I waited too long, and then the hospital waited too long. And by the time I was properly diagnosed with a stroke, it was way beyond all the standards that if you can catch it within the first three hours and be treated, you have far less probability of long-term disabilities. But it was like eight or nine hours before I was even sitting in the, in, the, uh, in the emergency room at the hospital. And so, as I sit here and talk to you, you had to sort of help me, although I did it on my own, but you were nervous, getting out of my wheelchair into this chair, my reading chair, that I'm so comfortable in. And, um, you know, so I'm still in a wheelchair. My left side is still pretty well dysfunctional, left leg, left arm. But you know, I was very, very lucky because my brain, I think, still works. 
If you ask my wife, she would question it. But <laughs> well, she would have questioned that before the stroke. I, I would, I would submit to you. <laughs> That's true. But since then, I've written two books, which have occupied a lot of my time, and have energized me enormously. The first book was called "Where's There," which is about my stroke, and I wrote it for other people who had strokes because we all are bewildered by it, and there's so much to learn by by our, those who had the stroke and by their caregivers, especially their family members and loved ones, and by their caregivers, I mean their aides and stuff. And so I wrote it for them. And it's called Where's There? Because when you go through therapy, typically the therapist is always saying, you know, you're doing some strenuous exercise, and the therapist says, keep going, keep going, you're almost there, you're almost there. And one day when I was doing it and ready to give up, I looked up at him and said, where's there? And I said, oh my God, I'm going to write a book and that's the name. Where's there? Because that's what drives you through years of therapy. Anyway, so I wrote that book and it was that can be gotten on Amazon too, but it's really for a very small audience. I always keep extra copies here and when I meet someone who's had a stroke or see someone in the hospital, I'll always bring them my book as a gift because I really want, I, I wrote the book to help other people. And then in, um, well, another long story, which I won't get into, but over the years, I've been kind of keeping a journal about my kids and them growing up and the wonderful, exciting things they, that occur that you know over time when you get a little bit wise. You know over time you'll forget. So I kept the journal writing them, knowing it would be delightful to return to the journal and re-experience those things, relive those experiences. And in that, as it evolved, I started sharing some of my wisdom. And that, those points in that journal really became the, the core of my book about thoughts along the way. Anyway. I think we're going beyond your time. but No, no, we're good, Mike. We're good. Uh, I do want to start wrapping it up, though. We've been going 52 minutes. Wow. Uh, so I can't believe uh, I talked that much. That's nice. Um, no, no, this is all excellent. So here's my last question to you. Uh, you're one of the wisest, I won't say most intelligent, but I will say wisest <laughs> uh, people that I know. You've been a great mentor to me. You've changed my life in many ways. And uh, so what, what sort of two or three nuggets of advice do you have for folks who are listening to, to this podcast? Um, out of this comment, I'll make my first point. You said you've, I've changed your life. What is really the truth, and I'm flattered, but you've changed my life too. And he, Bale changed my life because... Just such an interesting person to work with, so full of ideas. And my first point is, surround yourself with intelligent, capable people. And I found over time, so many employers are drawn to people who are not as smart as them. They're fearful of it. And um, I always look for people, and I, I, I truthfully mean this, for people who are smarter than me. Um, and I've developed ways over the years as an interviewer to sort of probe to um, just to see where they're coming from mentally and every other respect. Um, so the first point is 
you've got to surround yourself with really capable people. Really capable. You know, Kaysen, or uh, I hate to make this point, but there's a lot of truth to it. Um, look what's happened to President Trump. Everyone he surrounded himself with, almost everyone, almost every cabinet member has failed. And um, because he's hired people that um, that were, you know, just weren't capable. Anyway, I won't go any further with that. But anyway, when I look at you, Bela, and I look at um, Simon Belind, and all the people I've known over the years, um, um, the, most, the most important thing I can say is look for bright people, learn how to find them. If you're not sure, get help, either as a um, search consultant or find a friend. Find a friend who, you know, has a good feel for that and bring that friend along. And, you know, personally, I offer my services anytime they want it for free um, to help friends find employees, including my son, who has his own business now, who's an entrepreneur. And I keep saying, hey, call on your old man. So anyway, that's the point. So before before we get off of point number one, since it is point number one, you said you've developed a technique for sort of interviewing people. So can you describe that in a, a, a several sentences? What are the key elements of that? Well, I could try. And as you recall, you had me give a talk one time at the Clarkson Biz Lab Group about just that topic because you consider me a very odd interviewer and hirer. Um, one thing I've tried to do is always sort of get the interviewee, the person you're interviewing, um, comfortable. For example, when I first interviewed Bela, we met at Friendly's in Latham. I'll never forget that interview. Never, ever forget it. Which is, by the way, folks, Friendly's is a... Uh little sandwich and ice cream shop that's sort of a New England chain. But Except it's shutting down everywhere now. Yeah, it's having its challenges. It's a legend. It'll be a legend in our minds. <laughs> you know, make the person comfortable. Get off, you know, get off of each other's turf if you can. And then, so that's the start. And then chit-chat for a while. Just try to make, again, looking for comfort. Looking also for clues that will give you an indication of their work ethic, um, their personal strengths, their intelligence and wisdom. Um, and oftentimes casual conversation leads to that. So the standard interview is almost uh, is almost an embarrassment because it, it just it follows a textbook and it's boring as hell. Uh, what do you do? What have you done to qualify you and all that stuff? So I want that person to reveal to me things they've done. Have they been into sports? Do they love to read? Um, if you love to read, what's the best book you ever read? Why is it the best book? And readers tend to be very intelligent people. Um, sports or any kind of competitive environment, whether it's sports or whether it's um, one of my favorite employees, um, was they on the... Um, debate team at his college. That's a sport, basically, and that's competitive. Um, and being in a competitive environment, typically, you're a team member. 
whether it's debating or whether it's soccer or hockey or football or whatever. And um, if you act, it's been proven in the media, uh, in the literature, people who have been in sports and team sports, often when they're asked what led to your success, they'll frequently say having participated in team sports because you know you're one member of a team effort. So that's very important. So my rules have been to have casual conversations, waste, but it's really not waste, some time in making the person comfortable and probing what's in their head. I like, and I like what, you know, just interesting things that they want to talk about. What's the best movie you ever saw and why, you know. And then they're comfortable as hell and they'll talk to you. And then they start to reveal things most interviewers never expected. And that's why I always say that um, if you're smart and can get away with it, don't let your human resource people do your interviewing. But I've been in trouble for saying that. <laughs> that's all right. That's good advice. Uh, so back to the original question, any other uh, big tips? First one was yeah. uh, hire, smarter, hire people smarter than you. Yeah. Um, another one is that uh, to build constituencies. Um, when we developed the tech park, the, the university president, George Lowe, put together a feasibility study and put together a committee to work on that study. I was staffed to that committee. And it had, it represented all the constituents of the university environment. Um, and that proved to be very important. Students, faculty, trustees, alumni. Um, and then as the park evolved, the constituencies grew enormously. And, you know, I had to um, cultivate all of them. I didn't have to do it, but it, be, it was obvious that that's what would lead to success. And by all of them, I mean still those university constituencies. And then the community at large, especially the community in which the park was located. And beyond that, the county in which the park was located. And beyond that, state of New York and its economic development people. Um, and so the constituencies grew and grew. And beyond that, or not beyond that, but within that context, the neighbors to the park who were very fearful of what was going on and I spent I still have friends to this day who are neighbors had property adjacent to the park that you know I had to approach had to buy their land or negotiate a right of first refusal on their land um, and now 30 40 years later you know they've given up their property but I'm still good friends with them and I'm very, very proud of that. So building constituencies is very important. And, um, um, oh, and another one you can't overlook is the media. The media is potentially your best friend. And relative to the incubator and relative to the park, the more free ink I could get, the more success we would have. And I worked with lots of reporters, and I became known as... Um, the guy that supplied them with stories. And that's what Bela, you did. You know, we're, we're, if you're in the incubator and working with young, brilliant, interesting people with great ideas, a reporter, that's what they want. And, you know, the, my friends who reported, or not, you know, guys I knew in the media, 
would call me and say, you got any stories? I said, oh, God, do I have a good one for you? You know, go interview so-and-so. And um, we had a lot of good ink. Yeah, we did. And, you know, as I said, don't listen to HR people and be wary also of um, the communication staff at your company or your university because they always know more than you do. And maybe they do, but I like doing it my way. The media are my friends, you know, and I, I serve them and I serve them well. So building constituencies is a very important point. And within that context, it could be separate or it could be within it. I heard this before we started the park, and our park, again, and our incubator proved the true, um, to have a champion. And having a champion for your cause is critical. In our case, the ultimate champion, the ultimate visionary was George Lowe. Everybody admired, if not worshipped, George Lowe. And especially now, 50 years later after the Moon Program, to know the role he played and to know that you got to work for the guy. And, you know, and he was our champion, literally our champion. Other parks and other projects have had champions of board members of the trustees or champions of the mayor of the local community. You can always find a champion if you've got a successful project. So having a champion is critical. Those three things come to mind quickly when you ask me that question. I'm sure there's more, and if I, you know, if I were challenged to think about it over the next couple of days, I'd write another book. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe that's your assignment, is uh, write another book. Hey, Mike, it's been absolutely wonderful to spend this time with you. Uh, I appreciate you sharing all your stories and your insights. Uh, I know our listeners will find it uh, very interesting and valuable. Well, I thank you. It's been very enjoyable for me. You've taken me back 40 years or so, and it's always fun to reflect. So thank you for coming over, and thank you for letting me see a dear friend in yourself. Yeah, you're very welcome, Mike. Thanks again. Bela, that was awesome. Thanks for bringing Mike onto the podcast and kind of sharing some of your history with us. I found that it was amazing to me to learn about Mike and to hear you two interact because I feel like I learned a lot about you and a lot of the things that I really uh, respect and appreciate about you and our friendship, I saw coming out in the relationship that you had with Mike. So I thought that was great. But I have a couple questions just to kind of build on, on what was Uh, being discussed. And my first question is, how important, Bela, has, in your opinion, university-based tech parks and incubators and accelerators been to innovation in the U.S.? So I think think they were absolutely critical and continue to be critical. Uh, If you think about it, uh, the university environment um, is, is just a great place to help cultivate uh, technology, new business ideas, and new concepts. And if you read about and uh, some of the really big companies, whether it be Google or Facebook, uh, et cetera, many of them had their foundations uh, in a university. Uh, sometimes uh, it was a person who was at the university and decided to leave the university uh, to pursue their uh, dream, um, but many of them had their foundations at the university. Now, I reflect back on when I was running the incubator at RPI, 
And I, I would like to say that, you know, this was a stroke of genius and, and I planned it this way, but it, it just sort of worked this way. Uh, about a third of the companies in the incubator were uh, founded by faculty members. About another third were founded by students. And the remaining third were founded by people from the business community. So the incubator was this great, great mix of, you know, 19 and 22-year-old students uh, next door to faculty members who were uh, also surrounded by individuals from the business community. So if you think about an environment like that, I can't think of a better environment for sort of cultivating and starting a business. And I thinkers, think, ooh, sorry, and thinkers, I, doers, and dreamers all uh, in one all, place. Yeah, very right? good. Absolutely. Yes. And it's, it's, it's a unique opportunity to do that. I think it's very difficult to do that outside of the university. And I know Mike and I discussed this, but we, when we had the incubator there, we absolutely insisted that the incubator be located on the primary part of campus not two or three miles away off campus, right? We wanted it there on campus so that students and faculty could walk from their offices to the incubator uh, building and, and walk and, and, and interact there and not have to get in a car and not have to get on a bus, not have to go someplace. And the people from the business community who work there, they're already used to driving to work. <laughs> so for them, it was just going to work at a different place. So I think uh, they have played a key role and they continue to play a key role in the, in the beginnings of and the starting of new businesses. And I think history has demonstrated that. You can, you can go down the list of uh, many, many companies that we all have heard of and many we haven't heard of uh, that have started at universities in one way or another. This is cool. You know, and I, I agree with you 100%, but... This answers a lot of the critics. I, I've I've met people and I know people who say, "Hey, this is really expensive and it's a lot of effort. And is it worth it for universities to be doing this? Shouldn't they just teach my kid? I'm paying forty five thousand dollars a year for tuition. I want my kid to be taught well in the classroom." Um, but like you said, I think the opportunity for students to get outside the classroom and mix with business people and, and faculty in these uh, incubators and these, and these spaces uh, where, where ideas can, can percolate um, is really critical. The key is, is getting your kid to go and take part in these things, right? And to get out of their dorm room where they're playing video games all day or, um, you know, get out of the li library is a great place. Don't get me wrong, but go and do something, get your hands dirty and try this. And that takes some guts for a 19 year old, I think. So let me say this to you, Mike, uh, at RPI at Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute, the incubator was on the campus tour for prospective students. It was part of the tour. And there was a, a pretty significant number, meaning, you know, more than two or three, but probably less than 20 students who came to that school because it had an incubator. These students already had businesses in high school and they wanted to bring their businesses with them. So there were several examples of that where, you know, freshmen, I would get, I would get emails from freshmen or prospective freshmen before they showed up. Uh, for fall class and say, hey, look, I need some incubator space. I got a company already. So think of it not just from the perspective of 
of getting existing students to come and relate and, and engage. But this was a great recruiting tool, number one. Number two, the other thing that we really strived and tried to work on was trying to get incubator companies into the classroom and classroom into incubator companies. Now, what do I mean by that? Uh, I would go to faculty, business school faculty, uh, and try to get them to do projects for incubator companies. And I would try to get incubator companies to go give talks, in ver- whether it be engineering classes or whether it be business classes, um, and engage. So trying to get this flow of students and faculty back and forth uh, between the incubator and the classroom and the laboratories whether an incubator company was having a technology challenge they, they could use some help with from some smart PhD students or some faculty, or whether it was you know a, a business model or some financial analysis they needed, uh, and, and they, a, a business class could help them with that. And the beauty of this is it gave those students who were in the classroom or who were PhD students opportunities to work on real problems for real companies and get some insight what it's like to be part of a small company and seeing whether that environment works for them or not. So uh, you're right on. Uh, you got to figure out how to get that flow. Uh, but there are some um, pretty, pretty easy ways of doing that. Yeah. And that's why I think universities are a great place to have incubators. A lot of people say, oh, well, there's private incubators and let the private sector handle it or let local governments handle it. But I think in both those cases, they miss something that a university environment brings, this curiosity and this um, this uh, kind of intention of developing solutions to hard problems, the bringing together of people with different functional areas of expertise and different perspectives. I think that's how innovation happens. It's this kind of melting pot of of diverse perspectives and diverse ideas is where the great ideas come from. And sometimes when I, and I know people who've gone through these kind of private incubators or these government supported incubators, the people making the decisions kind of pick people that look a lot like them. So there's almost like a bias. And this is why if you see a lot of the research that shows that, oh, guess what? White men are getting a disproportionate amount of resources um, because white men are the ones that control the incubators. Well, of course, there's natural cognitive biases in terms of selecting people that you can relate with. It's not anything evil. Well, some people argue it's evil. From my perspective, it's not anything evil or purposeful. It's just the way things happen. So when you get in a university environment, you get this diverse mix of perspectives and backgrounds and ideas, and you give more people an opportunity to to get involved in in innovation. And I think that benefits all of society. I, I agree, Mike. I agree. Okay, second question. What did you learn about being a great manager and a great leader from Mike? Ah, that's a great, that's a great question. Uh, I think he sort of hit, hit the nail on the head. You know, I never felt like he was my boss, uh, although I knew he was my boss, uh, and I often went to him for advice. So, and, and Mike, for me, Mike let me do stuff. He was, he was, he was a, you know, if I went to him and said, Hey, you know, Mike, I'm thinking of doing this. And he would say, and (laughs) like, okay, what's, okay. What's the first step, right? He wouldn't say like, uh, he wouldn't give me all the reasons not to do it. He would say, and then what? 
Um, and I, what I really appreciated Mike for was, as you know, uh, a university environment can be a little bureaucratic and administrative, et cetera. A little? A little? And, uh, <laughs> yes. Good sarcasm. Yeah. It's, uh, it's, it's the most of that that I've ever... I've never worked in the public sector. So um, certainly compared to the private sector, the universities have a lot more sort of bureaucratic procedural things. Um, and Mike protected me from all of that because he knew... I had a low tolerance for that kind of stuff. So Mike basically took all of that off the table for me and he took care of it, which then really allowed me and empowered me to do the things I was really good at. So I think one of the things I learned uh, for, for, for a good boss is the notion of letting your folks do what they're good at and protecting them from the stuff they're not good at uh, because it, it, it lets them thrive. And, and I really felt that, you know, I thrived with Mike. And, and we were in two different, two different locations. So it wasn't like we were in the same building. We we're in different locations. And I'll tell you a funny little story. Uh, I had a pretty long commute uh, in the mornings and in the evenings back, uh, back and forth from, from work at RPI. And probably three or four nights a week, I would call Mike on my drive home from work. And that was sort of our... What happened today? You know, what sort of things can can we work on? And it was also sort of our bonding time where we had a good, sometimes a 10-minute conversation, but sometimes I'd be sitting in my driveway at home still on the phone with him, uh, you know, talking about ideas or thoughts or whatever. Uh, so the other key thing I learned is you have to engage. You have to engage uh, intellectually. Uh, and if you engage intellectually and you stimulate each other intellectually, then you have a really good sort of uh, uh, relationship. Love it. Good words of advice. Um, okay, the last question for you. And this is a little personal, so if you don't want to go there, it's okay. But what did you learn from Mike's medical challenges? And what impact has being close to him and watching him kind of go through the, the issues that he's faced – what has uh, what impact has that had on your approach to work and to growing older? Uh, great question. So uh, I will also tell you that when I worked at IBM Research, um, my boss's boss. So it wasn't wasn't my direct boss, but my boss's boss passed away at the office one evening when he was working late. And he was over 65. Uh, and, you know, that was like, hmm. And I was in my, I was in my 40s then, early 40s then. And uh, Mike Wachholder, when I was, when I, when he, when he and I worked together, he worked long hours. He was very driven because, because he loved what he was doing. I mean, he said that numerous times, right? I mean, he's, mm -hmm. he's, he's yep. an engaging guy, right? He, he's not, he, he doesn't sit around in a rocking chair. Uh, high energy, engaging guy. And um, I think that when, when that happened to Mike, you know, he was 69, I think he said, when he had his stroke. And, uh, you know, I just retired at, at 65. And um, as somebody once told me, or I heard, 
nobody ever said on their deathbed, gee, I wish I spent more time at work. And I love my work. I love what I do. But at the same time, I also love doing a whole bunch of other things. And I want to be able to do those because at some point in the time, many of the things I like to do, like ski and sail and fish, (laughs) fly fish and and hike and run, at some point, I won't be able to do those anymore. (laughs) Uh, and, And so you have to get the opportunities when you can. And I'm in a fortunate enough place in my life that I can retire. So for me, it was a very easy decision. It was like, okay, you know, this is the right time for me. And I think my my boss's boss at IBM, what I saw happen there and what I saw happen with Mike Wachholder, uh, you know, for me said, Bela, it's time. And it's a personal choice for everyone and everyone does it differently. And, you know, that's fine. So I don't know. That's sort of a rambling way of answering that question, Mike. But it's cool. And thanks for sharing that because, you know, these are personal things. But I think like you in your 60s and thinking this through, if you're like me in my 50s and this is kind of starting to come close for the first time in my life and thinking about these things or 40s or 30s or 20s. Um, you know, I had a conversation uh, just the other day with our mutual friend, Ellie Menz, who's a financial planner. And she talked about, hey, how do you prepare for retirement? How do you make sure that you have enough uh, money saved. And so when you're in your 20s, the biggest thing you can do is just start, right? Whether it's just a small amount or whatever, but starting to think through your financial plan for retirement. I don't think you're ever too young to start thinking about that, to make sure that you don't have to work, right? That right. like Mike, I think wanted to work, right? But you want to make sure at least if you're in your 20s or 30s that you're thinking about this, so that you have the the option, right? To kind of do what you did or do what I want to do, which is um, make sure that you have a a, an, a, an option, right, to 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 retire uh, at a point when they're not carrying you out, right? Right. Freedom of choice is a really wonderful thing to have. And, you know, we all make choices in life. And I was fortunate enough that Elaine and I, uh, we live pretty frugally. Uh, we we uh, save a lot more money than we spend. And so it gave us this freedom of choice, to be able to retire uh, and uh, enjoy things that we wanted to do, whether it be with grandchildren or, you know, go fly fishing. Or I just got back from a two-week sailing trip from Nova Scotia to Baltimore, Maryland. And, uh, you know, if I was working, I couldn't do that. So yep. Um, yep. it's... A- and we've been fortunate to have good health and to have, you know, like your kids are completely independent and, right. you know, we've, we've both had everything go our way and we realize that not everybody has that. That's that right. Lots of people uh, don't have the, uh, have things happen to them that, that create financial difficulties. Um, but hey, if you're in your 20s or your 30s, start thinking about that now, read up, talk to people. Um, so that if as hopefully everything goes as well for you as it does for us, you can be in a position to, like you said, have that freedom of choice to work or work part time or not work at all and, and enjoy. Uh, like you started with this, Bela, this idea of kind of balancing um, work and life. Yeah. And, you know, for, for Mike Wachholder, when he had a stroke, he had no choice. Right. Yep. Now, all of a sudden, the choice is made for you. Uh, yep. And, you know, that's a. That that can be very challenging uh, in many appreciate in, in, appreciate every day in many right ways, appreciate yeah. 
the, when the sun comes up every day. You had a bad day. There's people that have a lot worse things going on, right? Yeah. All right. All right. Well, that was a pretty good conversation just there, Michael. Thank you very much. Thank you, Bela. Should we wrap it up? Let's wrap it up. You want to go first? You can go first. All right. Hey, we're really happy you joined us for our podcasting adventure this week. And we hope you found the last hour uh, interesting and thought-provoking. Hey, we have a couple of requests. If you have any questions about what we discussed or suggestions about topics or potential guests, uh, get in touch with us. Our email is bela.and.mike at gmail.com. And if you like what we're doing, hit subscribe on your podcasting app. It's free. And even better, tell one of your friends. Uh, that you really enjoyed the podcast and get them to listen to it as well. So uh, we really enjoyed you spending time with us. We look forward to you joining us for our next episode. So signing off from upstate New York. Hey, Mike, see you next week. Thanks, Bella. See you next week. That's it from over here in Münster, Germany. Have a great week, everybody. This podcast is produced for Mike and I by our friends at Busy Media of Schenectady, New York. They can be found at busymedia.co.